Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Who's Your Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Who's Your Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at whosyourdevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's your devil? Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Field interviews with the best in bluegrass. We continue our conversation with Bluegrass Hall of Famer J.D. Crow today. J.D. shares advice for new bluegrass bands and musicians, his thoughts on doing things a little differently, and speaks fondly about the late Keith Whitley. He even talks about meeting Elvis Presley. If you haven't listened to part one of this two-part conversation, be sure to check it out. Let's continue our look at J.D.'s career and philosophy of music with the man himself by retaking our place at J.D. Crow's kitchen table with our host, Daniel Mullins. I mentioned that you're known as an innovator. And one of the ways that you were innovative is by bringing in drums, steel guitar, some electric instruments into your style of music. Right. What were what some of the initial reaction when you started doing that? <laughs> well, as you know, there was only one group doing that, the Bluegrass. And I, let, and I, and I love those guys, the Osmond Brothers. And I've known them since 1954. You know, and when they started out, they was doing straight acoustic, you know. Then they got into the mixing, started doing that, using the steel. But see, that was the only group doing that. And I thought, well, you know, there's room for another group to do that. So, only do it a little different. So they they caught, they cushioned the blow for you to do it, right? Yeah, they took all the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it was... Uh, oh, Sonny and I talked about that a lot, you know. A lot of times, you know, they they, they heckled them to death about that. And and I called uh, the grass holes. <laughs> <laughs> they, that's the hardcores. Yeah. You know, they didn't like that, you know. But look what they did. Yeah, they and, uh, you know, they kind of had the last laugh when they're yes, getting top 40 yes, country yes, hits and opening for Haggard, right? And I thought, man, you know, there's room for another group to do this and do it a little different, different material. And that's why I did I did that. That was kind of an that was my innovative move, I guess. Even today, the drums are still such a a, a hot button issue. Oh, it in is bluegrass, and it really, really. Well, I'll say it. It ticks me off. Really, that people cannot understand. You know, what even Flatus Groves had drums on their recordings. And, back and Jimmy the, did too. And yeah. Jimmy, yes. And I was very instrumental in getting him to do that on his records. Did you think it was really interesting that you caught blowback with drums, knowing that uh, these same folks that bought all those records you were on with Jimmy had had drums on those records too? They didn't know it. They didn't know it. You think it's just the, the visual of seeing them? I think it was a big part of it, you know. Do you think it's because by that time the drums were so associated with rock and roll that that was, that, that was, that was kind of and part they didn't of it. like rock and roll and they didn't like rock a lot and, of yeah. them and that's yeah I can that's probably uh that's why they didn't like them in bluegrass they said there was no room for drums in bluegrass hey but I would say but they're acoustic 
They're not plugged in. Pieta is acoustic. Yeah. Steel ain't, but no, who cares? No, no, Steel's no. great, right? Oh, I love that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, when you're yeah. talking about acoustic. Yeah. You know, I say, what do you want to do? You want to have no PA? You want to talk about originality? They didn't have PAs back then. You know, it's all, you get up close and listen at the acoustic sounds of the instruments and the vocals. You mentioned your friends Bobby and Sonny and how they were the first ones to to kind of yeah, bring in that, that more right. country rock sound into the bluegrass. They were. Do you think that, uh, I know, I think we've talked about this before. Do you think that they got caught too much flack for that and didn't get enough credit? I think they probably did. I know they got a lot of flack because I heard it, you know, and they, people mentioned to me, you know, and I'd say, hey, they're doing what they want to do. And they're make, and it's been successful for them. You can't argue with that. If you don't like it, don't listen at it. That's all I got to say. If you don't like me, don't listen at it. You know. You know. We said that they had the last laugh because they're the ones that had. They got those country hits right. and and, yeah. and winning CMA awards. Revol- yeah, and, right. And then y'all kind of had the last laugh too, because when you pulled that pulled that uh, steel in and those drums in and had Keith Whitley, y'all hit on a unique, oh, yeah. unique thing. We was more kind of more country <laughs> was grass. I don't care. <laughs> no. But you know, it's just something I wanted to do. And that particular record uh, you're probably talking about is that somewhere between. Well, that one and the Hall of Fame record, both of them. Well, the Hall of Fame was the first. The first one. Yeah. But then that's somewhere between one really straddled. Oh, I went for that. I mean, that's what I meant for it to be. It was a, uh, when Keith was with me, and we did that somewhere between, uh, see, album then, still was albums. Uh, That was a step in helping him get his contract because I knew he wanted to do country, and I knew he could do it. And And I always wanted to produce that type of album, yeah. and I always wanted to use the Jordanaires because they were my favorite. I mean, backup group. Uh, well, and they were not, they were known for backup group, but they were a one of the greatest gospel vocal groups when they first started. That's what they were. Then they got to be a backup group, you know. Uh, they could do it better. They could do it all. Anybody. Yeah. And I love the sound the way they did their backup, their step-up, step-downs, and the oohs and ahs, and it, it just nobody sounded like they did. That you was know? another instance, too, where your personnel really helped dictate your sound. Right. Having a, yes. a, a vocalist that's, that's one in a million is that's Keith Whitley right. exactly. that had such a country-sounding voice. That's right. That's the opportunity to do something that's like that. Right. And I knew he wanted to do that. And I, so I went out and got the material, and he brought in some material. And, and I got, you know, uh, some of it and songs that nobody had heard what, for a while. What was Keith's reaction to you telling him, hey, we're going to do a, he a country it. record? He didn't believe it. <laughs> he didn't believe it? He said, you're not doing We're not doing that. He said, you're not doing that. I said, yeah, we are. I said, and you're going to sing your little butt off. <laughs> <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> yes, he did. In fact, some of that. Some of that material we did was a one take. Really? Yes. What made Keith Whitley such a a unique talent? Well, those kind of only come along every once in a while. Him and Ricky Skaggs both are that kind of talent. 
you know, and uh, but Keith was different. Now Keith loved Lefty George, and uh, of course when Keith joined me, he knew every song we did. So he was like an encyclopedia when it comes to songs. He could set the one of those that just soaked them all oh, up. Yeah, all kinds of country stuff, you know. And he realized that I liked it as good as he did, you know. And uh, so that's where that all happened. You know, I said, well. If you want to do a country album, I want to produce one. So you said it's going to be a country record, but it's going to be under J.D. Crow in the New South. Yeah, right. Yeah, we uh, we were talking about doing this. I, Keith, and, and he had mentioned it. He'd like to do a country, you know. Not that he wanted me to do it exactly, but I knew. I said, okay, this might be an opportunity. And it's something I wanted to do, too. And, uh, and I knew it was getting pretty far out there. It was... Strictly more country. I only used the banjo on two cuts, but it's like in the country format, you know, which that's the way you do it. And uh, and I played the guitar rhythm on the rest of it, just the back guitar, straight rhythm, you know. And uh, that's back when they were doing it like that. And uh, so uh, anyway, we did that album somewhere between, which that's a Haggard song, and uh, and that was the title of the album. And uh, and I wanted, to, like I said, I wanted to use the Jordan Airs as some backup uh, on that. And, uh, man, it worked great. And, man, they were good. How did that record help Keith get his country deal? Well, they heard it. And Keith, of course, had a pretty decent name. You could pick it with Ralph, of course. Of course, uh, I think when he started with me, I think his name got out even more as the, in the country because – I was kind of noted for doing country stuff into the bluegrass. Yeah, you, know? you were pretty. You were kind of plugged in. Yeah, with that oh, country yeah. scene more than oh, yeah. most bluegrassers. Oh were. yeah, I was. And you knew so many of the veterans from your oh, time yeah. with Jimmy too. You oh, know, yeah, yeah, I knew most of them. We did package shows with them. See, and uh, and even when I worked with Mac Wiseman, nineteen fifty five. Uh, we did a lot of package shows with those country artists. And that was back when Mac was doing package shows with, yes. with Cash and all those oh, cats, yes. right? That's right. Ray Price. Yeah. And Farron Young Farron and Young, Jones. Farron all Husky. Those. Yeah. Just all those, and those guys were great. They were just so humble to talk. And all the side men, I call them, uh, you know. But they, they were actually the side men is what makes the stars between me and you, you know. Great musicians. They're stars in their own right. And a lot of them came out of that to be very... Uh, well, heck, look, yeah. look at all of them that came out of Ernest Tubbs' band. Just, yeah. Or all, all of them yeah. that came out of Ray Price's band, yes. you know? Yes. so That's exactly right. And to me, that's, that's it's so... And you know, I never got a picture or an autograph of any of them. Really? No. I never did want to impose... If you kind of got one from just one of them, who do you think it would have been? Elvis. Elvis. I got to meet him. Uh, we were at the Hayride. At the time, he came back when he was in service. Uh, I guess it was my time. I can't remember if it was before he went overseas or when he was in basic training. And uh, he came backstage the Hayride. He had a buddy with him. I was like, hey, man. I never could figure out why he upset the world. Really? He just like anybody else. 
he was just human. to meet him, just like he a normal a dude. Yeah. yeah. You know, he sat and talked just like we're talking. You know, it's just amazing, though. No, but he did. He liked different kinds of music. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and he liked biggest, the bluegrass a lot too. He did, and the biggest was gospel. Oh yeah, that was that his was all, big all of his biggest selling and award winning records were that's his right, gospel. That's ones. right. Yeah, and that's amazing. I've met so many. Otherwise, I'd never have got to do that. And not I've been in the music business. You know, for that I'm thankful. Because how many people get to do that? And become friends with them, know them firsthand, especially all the side guys, yeah. as they call us, oh, the yeah. scholars back then. You know, and uh, man, they were just all just great. They, just, they were part of that sound. They were part of the of what was happening. And then most public and general public, they don't realize that. They don't have a clue. <laughs> Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not overpowering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass. And now back to Walls of Time. What are ways you think that bluegrass as a genre could increase the demand for this type of music? It goes back to the basics. You've got to have a good band. You've got to be unique in what you're doing. You've got to have something that the public wants. Then it has to be advertised. People have to learn your name. You got to have if you got a good product, you got to have an outlet for it. And that's what bluegrass does not have. You can be the best picker in the world, but that's if right. no one knows who you are, that's you ain't going to make any money. That's it. You're not good, bad, or indifferent. It has to be out there, you know. And and if you don't, like you said, you could be the best in the world, and <laughs> nobody knows it. But you got to have the bottom line is you got to have. The starting point, and that is a good, solid band that is a little different, that people want to hear and see. Where do you see the line between innovative and drifting too far from the shore? Because we've heard bands that have been innovative, but they might have just taken it a little so far out in left field that they kind of lose that bluegrass sound. Right. They, they're not bluegrass. They're not country. They're not rock and roll. What are they? It's okay to be creative. But like I said, you get too far out, you're lost. You're drifting out there by yourself. And I think, too, Daniel, I think there's so many pickers nowadays. I mean, I know myself. I don't know half of these players anymore. It's like they come up every week or every month. It's a new band or two. What do you think some of the biggest mistakes that new bands or new pickers make early on in their career that, that maybe inhibit up. their... They give up? 
they don't want to put into it what it takes to do it. They want it, they'll get so far, then they seem to stop. They think it's an all, it's a party. It's all a big game. No, it's not. What's a time in your career where you had to, to make the decision whether to give up or to keep going with this music and stick to it? There's been a few times. As a couple of us have been very close, you know, but you go through it. Well, when you lose a group that's, you know, one of the best groups you've ever had, you know, but there again, at one time it was down just to, just to me and Bobby Sloan. And there, there was one of the times. Well, you, you're talking about, at the, about at the end of 75? Yeah. You know, because I knew I couldn't replace that. There is no way. I wouldn't even try. You know, and of course I understood they wanted to do their thing. And that's good. That's that's what makes and different they bands. All just, they all just happened to get opportunities yes. th- th- at the but same time, you know. They but had still. the talent to do it. Yeah. That's what I knew. And they did. And that's, that is great that they were very successful in the different genres of music. Hey, but they were successful. But they never left. They still got that bluegrass feel. They can do it. I remember you talking to me before about when, when you and Doyle were, were working in the clubs and yeah. it got to the point where you had to decide whether the, the two of you were going to work full-time yeah. and or, or pick part-time. Or pick, yeah. Or pick Full time, yeah. How totally? What what went into that decision? How hard was that for you uh, to decide whether to make a go with this or not? Because you guys easily could have just. Oh yeah, it was easy. Your lives could have been completely different, and the music could have been completely different. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Oh, we just. uh, I guess the way we thought, well, you get a job anywhere, and back in those times, you could, you know, as well. We'll go for it. Let's try it and see how it goes. And uh, if it don't work, it don't work, you know, and that's what we did. You, you know, you got to do it. And you, when you do it, you got to go for it. You got to go for broke. And that's it. Do you think that some bands may be too too hesitant and not and not putting all their cards on the table? No, and, and like you I said, think, going for broke? And it is. It's a scary business. As, and this, that's not the only business that's scary. Anytime you're self-employed, you're going into business, starting new. It's tricky, you know. It's it's, it's very risky, and uh, I I don't know. I, we were just lucky, but I think we looked at it as a business, and you know, of course, there are some. You know, you have a lot of fun doing it. You know, never you know, but it's really something you really want to do. You love it. And we'd rather do it than anything else, you know. And I think that's what drove me is I was determined, you know. To be successful. To be. And you got different levels of of success, too. It's however far you want to go with it. You mentioned that viewing it as a business. What are some ways that viewing it as a business impacted your decision-making? Well, you know, I knew... I'd seen a lot of the other ways that why they didn't make it, you know, and I knew, and it was very easy to get into that too. And but I said, you know, it's like when we were playing at the Holiday Inn five nights a week, we still rehearsed. 
we would bring in new material, and and I and, and some of the material even I didn't care all that much about. But we were at the Holiday Inn. We had to bring people in that door. That was the key to us staying there. You had to make the cash registers ring. Okay, so I knew if we kept doing the same thing over and over and didn't change. We weren't going to have that job. People long. would get tired and sure. stop coming. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have to do that. We and we did that quite a bit. You know, as much as we could or really wanted to, but we did it enough that we stayed there a long time. And we all, after a while, just started hating it because you know you, you're you're wearing yourself out. You know, and you're, you're doing not going anywhere. Sick. What was it? Six nights a week, five, five shows a night, five, five nights a week, and how many four hours? Shows. Four shows. What about six p to two a? About that. Four to twenty. Forty on, twenty off. Of course, sometimes it was thirty on, thirty off. <laughs> you had a little variance there, yeah. yeah but uh, it was a good. I think that helped us in a way, as far as being musicians and helping us in our playing and uh, really. The song selections, the rehearsals, and all of that made better pictures out of us. Well, and you said, you know, learning the lesson that, you know, you have to adapt and change, keeping yeah. things fresh. It really is a testament when you look at the progression of your band because, you know, by the time Keith got there and you started doing the country records, the festivals, you know, the festival scene was really starting to, to peak. And here yeah. you guys are making a country record and yeah. getting to do some country package shows and have yeah. some really cool opportunities. Right. Was that just a, a matter of right place or right time? Or is there any, uh, were you kind of happy for a change and not playing the same old festivals by that time? I was happy and doing something a little different, but I mean, I love the festivals and the bluegrass festivals. Some of them, some of them I didn't care for, uh, because of the, the venues themselves are not, you know, uh, but anyway, do you think that do you think the the bluegrass festival scene and bluegrass festival model hurts or helps our our business? Let's face it. When you think about it, if not for the bluegrass festivals, where would you play? You're not going to play on a country show, package country festival. You're not going to do that. There's only one alternative. You play in bars, and if I had to do that all my life. I would not do it, you know, if that's all it's going to. Just people don't realize, but that we were there at the Holiday Inn. Yeah, it was a great gig, especially during the winter months when these other bands had no place to play. But these dives, I call them. Yeah, and, you know, those was, gun and knife clubs, that's right. It. Yeah, and I don't want any part of that. I've been there, done that, don't want that more, and I wasn't going to do it. At least the Holiday Inn was a decent place. Oh, yeah, it was nice. an upscale establishment, oh, yeah. I guess we were the first string band or whatever, that ever play in the Holiday Inn Lounge. Because that just didn't happen. And I give Holiday Inn credit. I give the guy that owned those Holiday Inns. He was the one that hired us. So they were, they really, they, at one time, they were going to send us to Australia. They built a new Holiday Inn over there. In Sydney. Wow. Yeah. And it came, I don't know what happened. I think they realized that they were making enough money over here. They didn't want to turn us loose. If it ain't broke, don't fix that's it. it. Yeah, and I think that's what happened. But they would. They were. That was mentioned that uh, 
they was going to send us out to Sydney, Australia. And back to the discussion of how lean times were back then for, they were. for bluegrass. Yes. The fact that y'all were able to prove that bluegrass can make money. Right. Do you think that that's a problem that a lot of musicians don't think at is that right. if, if you can't prove to someone that you can make money. Right. That uh, you might not get or make some them money. Make them money. That's it. If you if you can't prove that hillbilly music or you know whatever or is. whatever yeah. can't make someone money, you're not going to get opportunities like that. That's right. There's got to be you. You have to have, make money for the people that hires you. Whether That's that is it. selling tickets at a door or, or selling drinks at the Holiday Inn or drinks or, or whatever. That's right. Or or like Lester and Earl and selling Martha White flour. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That they wouldn't have signed on if Lester and Earl weren't making Martha White a lot of money. That's true. And they needed that publicity that time. See, you were asking me that question a while ago. If I, you know, what would suggest if somebody was wanting to get into the business, you know, and I and like I said, you got to have something different that people want, and you got to be good, whether you're a soloist or whether you got a band, has to be different, has to be good. And you have to look at it like a business. And you've got to run it like a business. There's a difference between friendship and a business. You have to cut the ties right there. Do you think that's a key factor as to why folks like yourself and Doyle Lawson and the Osborne brothers, folks that really viewed that business, had that business mindset? You have to have some of that. Yes. Yeah. That's right. You can't please everybody. So quit trying. First thing, you please yourself. But try to please what you can that's all you can do you know i kind of did what i I enjoyed doing like it was a challenge and that that's what i did is a kind of music that i listen to and still do and there's a good chance that if if you do the type of music that you like that if you like it someone else might like it too yeah you know yeah versus making your music cater to 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 trends or to charts or or to whatever but you know People right there, that's the bottom line, is the money. If you can't make people money, then you're not going to make money. How do you straddle that line between making money for you or for the man and making music that you believe in? You got to do all three. That's what's hard. And I go, Lord knows I've straddled the fence a few times. (laughs) And it worked to a certain extent. To a certain extent, it didn't. No. You know, we still survived. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. Over your decades in the music business, do you have, do you have any regrets at all? Maybe a few, but 
like the song says, too few to mention. But uh, it is what it is. I'm just glad it worked out like it did. You know, I was one thing I was glad that people has been in the New South. Uh, most of them has went on to do good, and that's that's a great feeling to know that I, they used to be in New South. That's got to be a great feeling to see Ricky was yeah. was a key cog in your wheel, yeah. tearing up the CMAs like oh, yeah. that. Yeah, that's great. And then see you know see Keith do the same thing yeah. back in the day. Yeah, and then, but then you know, I just well, I just think if he lived, what he could have done as far as a singer, you know. But but I tried; it just didn't work, you know. Some people are dead set against. They create their own destiny. Could you see some of the signs in Keith that, that oh, yeah. he had a problem? Oh, yeah. Big time. I knew it when I hired him. A lot of times you think, well, it's in a different situation. Yeah, maybe a change yeah. of environment. Yeah. yeah. You know, people around people that don't do all that stuff, you know, drinking and like that. And uh may help. Just didn't work. That's some people's fate. Did you think that, uh, you know, you said maybe coming to you, change of environment would help. Did you think the same thing when you helped him get the country deal, that maybe that change of environment yeah, would help with that I as thought, well? Because I knew that's really what he wanted That's what he do. really wanted. He loved it. He did his part in bluegrass. He did about all he could do, you know, and he did well, do it great with it. And he wanted to do the country, okay? And I knew he could do it. So I said, okay. We'll go for it. And uh, it did, but there again, he was, just was not destined to do that. Do you think that it's bad to take yourself in this business too seriously when it comes to your fate and your destiny and your fulfillment? You could, yeah. There'd be a lot of disappointments, a lot of frustrations. And they're going to be there regardless you you've never seemed to do that because there's some people out there that that view this business and this music as as the be all end all to their lives and and you've never no, you've never really done that. There's more where, to life. Where do you find your fulfillment? Being able to survive and make a living, decent living, and do what you enjoy doing. What more is there? Because there's a lot of folks that uh, that scratch their heads when you said you. Uh, we're going to retire. Yeah. I can remember, you know, the summer that you were going to retire, going to Bean Blossom and seeing mm -hmm. you stand out there for three hours yeah. and put everybody to shame. And they're like, man, if he's still picking that good, why is he going to retire yeah. for? And there's, a, you know, there's some folks that, that don't view the music like that. And That's true. And you and you, you had a different perspective. You wanted to, to you know, kind of go out on top, essentially. That's it. I wanted to go out while I was still playing decent because I saw how these other guys went out. And I didn't want to go like that. I mean, they love the music, and I love the music. But there's such a thing of knowing when to quit. Because you're not going to stay that good. When you get older, age tells on you. And the traveling takes its toll on you. And, and although I love to travel, but I could tell the time, and I told the guys a year ahead that after this year, when I turn 75, I'll finish the year out because I turn 75 in August. 
I said, I'll finish the year out, but after that, I won't be back. I said, I'll do some special stuff sometimes, yeah. you know, maybe here and there, but nothing full time. Yeah. No band. Uh-uh. Did you already have in your head that 75 was the year yep. or, okay. That is if I stayed healthy yeah. enough to do it, you know, and, uh, because your health is a big factor. That's first. And uh, it just, it was time. I mean, I'd play, I did this 60 years. That's a long time. It's a long time to pick a banjo. <laughs> yeah, to travel and go through all that, you know, and be lucky. I still survived, you know, because traveling is getting really bad. So much traffic nowadays, it's not like it used to be really dangerous you know that you survived even that and uh but i did uh you know i had some fun like uh doll paul me we got together and that that had to be that. a blast that's a lot of fun yeah. yeah i enjoyed that you know and uh and some other things and so uh i just enjoyed it it was fun but i knew i didn't want to get back in it like i was you know, so I just decided that that's about it. As the saying goes, nothing is never like it once was. And it'll never be that way again. That's interesting you said that quote. Do you think that that's a problem with our industry, is that we have a we have a hard time understanding that nothing is ever like it once was? I think so. Well, people don't think about that. But brother, like you said, brother, when you've done it once, you can't do it again. You've done it. That's it. You can do something like it, but it won't be the same. Whether it's something it. that you did or something right. someone else That's did. right. Same deal, you know. So, but, I'm, you know, it, it was it was a blast. It really was. I enjoyed it. And, you know, no regrets, really. But the main thing is you got to stay healthy to survive. Right. If you don't. You're not going to play. What were ways that you stayed healthy on the road, touring as much as you did? One, and, uh, I, I don't know. Some of the things I did, I wonder myself <laughs> why I'm still here. <laughs> you know, because we probably all, especially with Jimmy back do, in the days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all do these crazy things. You know, it's just built into it. No, I've had some great times, man. I, I have. I, I with Jimmy and. Uh, all the guys that's been in the New South, we've had a ball. It's fun. Every one of them, we're still great friends. Yeah, and it's great to see them. And that probably means a lot more than any, than any than really, any records or any that's true festival appearances. The people know. I've met and had become friends with that I never would have got to, and not I've been doing you know playing music, and the guys that's been in the band. Of course, some of them are gone, you know. They went too early, but that's the way it is. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Crow. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Oh, I have too. (laughs) It's the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. You just heard part two of our interview with J.D. Crow. I'm here with co-producer Ty Gilpin. What a packed episode in this second half of our convo with J.D. Crow. And he starts right out of the gate uh, letting us know his thoughts on people that 
give him and the Osmond brothers and other artists flack for having drums in bluegrass, which has always been one of the most controversial topics in bluegrass. It's controversial now, but probably even more so 40 years ago. It's the age old, it ain't no part of nothing debate that's raged on in bluegrass. <laughs> Absolutely. And I loved how he points out that drums are acoustic, which I thought was, was interesting fact that he points out for the people that have a problem with it. I mean, drums were used on Flat and Scruggs recordings, Jimmy Martin recordings. I also did not know that Crow was the one that encouraged Jimmy to use drums, which I thought was really cool as well. The drums and bluegrass, always an age-old uh, debate. But Crow uh, dives into a lot of cool content here, especially as we look at when he took the New South sound to more of a, a country influence with uh, with Keith Whitley. And I guess if you got Keith in the band, it goes into our conversation last time about how he used the strengths of whoever was in the band to have his uh, band sound adapt to that. Right. I think that's great. You know, as he was open and uh, uh, embracing of the different styles of bluegrass covering, you know, uh, more West Coast sounding music, he was able to uh, include a lot of just pure traditional and roots country with uh, Keith Whitley's influence. I think a great example of this, uh, my home ain't in the Hall of Fame album. Oh, one of my faves. Encourage folks, encourage folks to check that one out. We'll probably put some links to that album as well on some of our social media. So if you all haven't heard that album, it is a must, and Keith Whitley at his very best. And then he even talks about, tragically, Keith's passing way too young after he helped Keith get his country contract, which I thought was particularly moving as well. Yeah, I think all of bluegrass and country music still mourns the passing of Keith Whitley. Still one of the genre's best voices. Crow dives into a lot of uh, nuts and bolts stuff, too. I'm sure if there's any uh, young pickers or new bands out there, we're probably grabbing their notepads and just jotting stuff down furiously. What did you think were some of the most insightful or practical things that he mentioned about uh, advice for new bands and for new musicians? Well, one thing I love about listening to J.D. Crow talk about uh, his success is his work ethic. Um his ability to have grit and stick to itiveness and work hard. And uh, at the same time, not being afraid to evolve. I think that there's always been a debate on uh, what is part of the big bluegrass tent. And I think it is continuing to be an even bigger tent. And I really thought it was great that uh, J.D. encouraged people not to be afraid of evolving the music and adding their own personality, their own outside influences. Uh, I just think that's important sentiment overall just that keeps the music viable and a, and a living, growing thing. Absolutely. He talks about uh, being innovative, and uh, we get into this later on in our season as well when we talk to Sonny Osborne. In this day and age, Crow and Sonny have been elder statesmen of our, our music for so long, it's easy to forget that they were such innovators when they burst onto the scene, bringing in all these outside influences. And it's ironic, I think, that people will wag their finger at new bands that will bring in outside influences and say, you need to sound more like traditional, like the Osborne brothers or JD Crow when the stuff they were bringing in, you know, songs like sin city for the new South or songs like take me home country roads or Shelley's winter love for the Osborne brothers. were breaking down those same types of barriers 
40 uh, something years ago. It's a it's an interesting conversation that still continues to this day. Yeah, I think that's why it's so great to hear right from uh, the mouths of uh, these legends. Like J.D. Crow is a legend uh, of bluegrass. And I think it's so great for people to hear um, right from J.D. what he thinks about those elements, about change, about growth, about what does and doesn't belong. Um, and I love the question you asked him about why the uh, the Rounder album was so special. Oh, yeah. And that's one of those that really is a touchstone of bluegrass music. And to dive into that record and see the way that he balanced tradition and innovation, it's such a great snapshot for his entire career where he's walked the line between tradition and innovation, both being a, uh, a gatekeeper and a forward thinker of bluegrass music. It's, uh, it's a great conversation. We could have done a whole season on J.D. Crow, honestly. Yeah, and I think uh, hearing these kind of ideas uh, from these important players in the genre is really what this podcast is all about. And in the episodes to come, you're going to hear more and more great insight and uh, personal thoughts and feelings on where the music came from and where it's going. I think that's really to the heart of what this podcast is about. So I'm glad we're uh, able to, I'm glad you were able to talk to so many of these fantastic, fantastic musicians. We're all excited. You know, part of this podcast is to help spread bluegrass and to introduce new people to the history and uh, to try to help expand the music. Crow was so smart in realizing that one way he can grow his band and grow the music is to be able to to have it make money. And he did that at the Holiday Inn. We talked all about the Holiday Inn last time, reminding people that uh, at the old Holiday Inn location, which is now a Clarion Hotel, but at the former home of the legendary Red Slipper Lounge, there is going to be a big bluegrass festival. February 28th and 29th, it's called Bluegrass and the Bluegrass. It's hosted by Sam Jam and Rudy Fest and presented by Bourbon 30. It's going to feature Dual Austin and Quicksilver, Balsam Range, Larry Cordell, Don Rigsby, Sideline, and more. Folks can call 859-233-0512. That's 859-233-0512. It's hosted by Sam Jane and Rudy Fest, Bluegrass and the Bluegrass. And if when you call, you could mention that you heard about the event on the Walls of Time podcast, we would appreciate it. But the way Crow talks about having to straddle the line between making money for yourself, making money for the man essentially whether that is the promoter or the record label or whomever while still maintaining originality and your own heart and soul in the music sounds contradictory but i think i thought he did a great job explaining that you've got to be able to do all three and even though it's hard straddling those fences is really can what help project you and project the music yeah i thought it was great jd talking about when he just had to go for broke and he was self-employed and so he had to have some fearlessness and determination uh, and view what he did as his passion also as a business and I think that's an important thing for everybody to keep in mind uh, no matter what genre you're working in uh, music business is a business and uh, if you want to be a significant artist uh, working hard and stick to in the midst of creating and within your passion it's an important element Absolutely, absolutely. This is Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Next time, we chat with Blake Williams, and you talk about a guy that learned from the legends. When you work with Lester Flat and Bill Monroe, it's hard to get much more legendary than that. Yeah, man, the Sparta Flash, Blake, who's also one of the funniest men 
you'll ever talk to. Oh, absolutely. There's a reason he's one of the top MCs at bluegrass festivals around the country and just such a great dude as well. Great guy, great player. Um, so glad that we're continuing on with our episodes with him being episode number three, Blake Williams. Episode number three. He's actually the first one re-recorded when we decided we wanted to make the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Blake Williams was the first name on our list, and I'm excited for folks to get to learn more about him and his career. Be sure to go to wallsoftimepodcast.com. Uh, be sure to, however you're listening to our podcast, subscribe, rate, review us. If you have a friend that likes bluegrass music that you think would enjoy the podcast, if you could share it with them, we'd really appreciate it. And folks can follow us on social media as well. Where can they follow us, Ty? Walls of Time Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and Walls of Time Pod on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.